Did we lose Kenny? Kenny, you broke up for a second. Oh, can you hear me now? Hey, Kenny, your audio is kind of bad. So if you could just drop <laughs> off real quick and come back. That'd be- <laughs> hey, Ryan, what's our protocol there if we lose Kenny? What do we do? Is there a Google Doc somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. And it's everyone's monthly favorite. It's the Bourbon Community Roundtable. And this is where we invite some of the brightest minds in bourbon media to come on. We go deep on a few topics. And the first one, well, it's the story that just keeps on giving. Earlier this year, Sazerac came out of the gate putting a $38.6 million lawsuit in front of Republic National Distributing Company, otherwise we all know as RNDC. And now here we are a few weeks later, and we get RNDC's response, where they are countersuing for Sazerac's attempts of what they call undermining the three-tier system, and they're claiming over $10 million in damages. And in the second half of the show, we dig into another topic of what we've been seeing is that the increase of counterfeit bourbon bottles And these aren't even super rare bottles. I mean, we're talking four rows of single barrels and Weller foolproof. So we ask ourselves and we ask the roundtable, should distilleries step up and have more tamper-proof seals? Or is this just a buyer beware type of situation? Because after all, you are buying it on the secondary market. Now we've said it a million times and we're gonna keep saying it again. If you wanna help combat the spread of these fakes, please throw away your empty bottles. But before doing so, take a Sharpie, write on the label, write a meme, whatever it is, or even go far as breaking them or drilling a hole through them. But just don't be that person selling empties on eBay. With that, enjoy this week's episode. Now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from John B., who writes me on fredminnick.com. For Above the Char, hey Fred, longtime follower, first time writing you. We actually met in Boston at the Boston Cocktail Summit, when you were promoting your book, Whiskey Women. Wow, that was actually 10 years ago. I got your signature. Oh, thank you. Okay, here's my question. Are single barrel programs at distilleries and DPs a selection of barrels that are of lesser quality than the brand offerings? Ooh, boy, John B's wanting to stir the pot here. Wanting to stir the pot. There are, let's point out three brands, okay? So let's go to Smooth Ambler, Nashville Barrel Company, and Smoke Wagon. Those three companies right there have put out some of the best MGP barrel picks I've ever had. And I would say that those those three brands have done a better job promoting MGP whiskey by the virtue of putting out incredible stocks than MGP has with its own brand in uh, Remus. The whiskey that has that they have showcased has been an incredible ambassador to that particular distillery in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. If you take a look at Kentucky, Kentucky bourbon, the brands that are relying on Kentucky bourbon for as an NDP, I do think that a lot of those single barrel programs are inferior to the brands from whence they came. So if you take a look at Ah, uh, shoot. I, I, because they don't publicly tell you that their product is from Barton, you know, because they can't. But let's just say, like, anything that's coming from Barton that this turns into a single barrel program, it's not going to be as good as uh, 1792 because of Barton, you know, they're going to be like, okay, these are good, but we're going to kick them over here to our uh, warehouse brokerage program. And because people are su- in such a hurry, with Kentucky bourbon to get it on the shelves to make money, you know, they tend to rush barrels out before they are absolutely perfectly matured or uh, to their best ability. Whereas like the Indiana barrels, people seem to be okay to sit on them a while and that maturation adds a little bit more flavor to them. So I think that John, uh, to answer your question, you essentially have two, you know, two answers from me. You have one, the products that are bottling MGP, bourbon out of Indiana, those t- typically are better than the brands that are coming from MGP. The products that uh, are bottling Kentucky bourbon for their single barrel program are typically not as good as the original distilleries offerings. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. I hope that helped you, John. 
and uh, yeah, whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of scenarios there for you. But that's going to do it for this week, folks. If you want to be like John, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button. And if I like the uh, question, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Need.com, spelled K-N-E-A-D, is a discount site for your favorite whiskey brands, but up to 50% off. So if you're looking to try some great single barrels or popular distilleries at a lower price, Need puts up a new discounted bottle every day of the week until it sells out. Add your email to be notified of new releases because they will sell out fast. That is need.com spelled K-N-E-A-D dot com. Play Whiskey Wednesday Round 11, The Memory Game. Until June 26, each week you can win one of our 12 incredible grand prizes. Select two doors at checkout. And if they match on drawing night, you'll win that bottle. Not a match? No worries. You still score a Weller 12-year. Every $5 ticket gives you five chances to win, including four weekly bonus prizes. Get your tickets now at give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Always find what you love at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. And with every bottle comes the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly and be 21. Welcome, everybody. It is a Bourbon Community Roundtable number 79. We're glad everybody's back. We got the full roundtable here tonight to go and dive into some fun and new topics. But the whole team is here as well. Kenny, myself, Ryan, and Fred. Fellas, doing okay? Doing great. It's a great day to be alive. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a, I'm a happy man right now. I got the positive vibes seeing my good friends, Ryan and Kenny up here. And Ryan's a master chicken farmer this week. So that's right. <laughs> I didn't even see he changed it. <laughs> I got two eggs, my first two eggs today. And so I'm really proud of all the five months I've been stroking these chickens and raising them in my basement then moving them outside. And I thought they were getting, I thought they were defective for a few weeks because they hadn't laid any eggs, but now it's like, I go out there and I was like, because I put these fake eggs out there to like stimulate them and all they did was kick them out of their nest. And then I just thought they were the fake eggs down in the bottom and it wasn't, it was a real one. And I was like, all right. And then my daughter dropped it and cracked it. And she started, <laughs> <laughs> and she, and she started just like uh, bawling and I'm like, it's okay. They'll lay more. And there was, there was one more in there. So uh, it was fun. <laughs> the, there is always gonna be one tomorrow <laughs> that's right allegedly <laughs> they're supposed to lay one one a day so we'll see tomorrow all right well now it just seems like your morning routine just got a little bit longer you got to go and search for eggs every single morning now yeah i was just going in there every two or three to fill up their water now i gotta go every morning get those damn eggs but i'm excited that we cooked one up scrambled it it was tasty i'm gonna make a new york sour i was gonna make one tonight i didn't realize we had a round table and then i was like damn i guess i'll 
get on the round table. They always catch <laughs> up on us, don't they? I mean, they they do. always just they just they just like appear like, in the calendar. I feel like I just did one and then they just <laughs> pop up. But I'm glad to be here. They're always fun. If it makes you feel any better, I didn't really start planning out our topics until around maybe five o'clock today. I didn't really pay attention to the calendar. So yeah, it sneaks up on me too. I'm proud of it, Kenny. Yeah, the reason we're actually doing this about two weeks ahead of schedule is because next week is spring break for a lot of people. So it's kind of a good opportunity to get it out early so we're not all actually doing this while on spring break. Yeah. Uh, Blake's on spring break every week, so he could. And quickly, let's go ahead and introduce the rest of the roundtable. So, Blake, we already called you out, so you go ahead and chime in there. Good to be back. You know, it's always fun to uh, a little less time in between the last one and this one. So it's been fun. Looking forward to some good topics. Uh, I'm Blake from Sealbox. So thanks for having me. And Eric. Yeah, I'm Eric from Breaking Bourbon. Um, called up to the ranks again uh, for the show. I think I'm going to be start being added to the rotation. So I won't be able to say this over and over again, but, <laughs> but here again. They call him the lefty. Is that what yeah. it is from the outfield? Bring nice. <laughs> and Brian. All right. Brian was sipping corn and bourbon justice. Happy to be here as always like these topics. So we got the, you know, one of the lawsuit topics. So that always, uh, gets, gets me going and it's, uh, interesting. So happy to be on and, uh, happy to see Eric and happy to hear about eggs. Happy to see all you guys. Oh yeah. This is, this one's all just basically teed up for Brian. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of dig into this because we had talked about Sazerac side of the lawsuit on a previous round table. And now we get to kind of look at the other side of it. So fellas, just go ahead, take a break, take a moment, go pour yourself something, come right back because I'm going to read this as a kind of a summary for people that haven't been paying attention to it. And so you can kind of understand exactly where RNDC is standing, what their arguments are, and then we'll start digging into some more of the questions around it as well. So now that RNDC has responded to Sazerac, here's a little bit of the background. So in January this year, Sazerac filed a high-profile lawsuit against RNDC claiming around $38.6 million in unpaid invoices and unprofessional conduct by the company, citing tie-in sales of lucrative bourbon labels. Among other grievances against the distributor is Sazerac's claim that RNDC didn't effectively promote Sazerac products in retail stores, Sazerac and RNDC's relationship was so tightly intertwined that Sazerac allegedly controlled RNDC's product orders, introducing a supply system in 2021 that mandated minimum purchase requirements and automatic shipments to RNDC. So under the system, RNDC states that Sazerac ordered the product, sent it to the distributor, and then billed RNDC for the shipment. RNDC says that Sazerac began to set unattainable standards for RNDC that seemed designed to set up RNDC for failure. And that downplayed the distributor's successful ventures, such as promotional campaigns. Under the new product shipment system, Sazerac repeatedly ordered excessive amounts of products, more than RNDC could reasonably sell, and failed to properly address concerns by RNDC per the filing. In September of 2021, an agreement between the two companies established RNDC's gross profit to $8.50 per case, and that's regardless of any product contained inside. To recoup those losses and profit, Sazerac stated that the company would take on RNDC's marketing and promotional responsibilities in-house, and RNDC alleges that Sazerac intended to launch a campaign to circumvent the three-tier distribution system. Throughout last December, Sazerac continued to order product on RNDC's behalf, leaving the distributor with an excessive $123 million in inventory with no indication that RNDC would soon no longer be Sazerac's primary distributor across the country. And with that, RNDC couldn't then sell to any other wholesalers, and Sazerac also refused to accept returns of any product. So now that we have a little bit of color on the two sides, we start digging into this. And I guess the first thing is, is, you know, I kind of want your first opinions, but does Sazerac come off a little bit like a bully in this? Now that you've kind of seen what Sazerac had said, and they had said that they wanted to kind of create some more stuff in-house, that they weren't actually helping promoting their product. But now it looks like RNDC and what they're saying, it's like, well, aren't Sazerac just has all this capability to order as much product as they want. And they just stuck them with $123 million in inventory without the ability to go and resell it or to take it back. So kind of get some initial thoughts from you all. Yeah, I mean, you're reading through that 
the whole thing, it's first thing that sticks out is just it seems crazy that these billion dollar companies didn't have operating agreements or, or some type of more formalized distribution agreement. You know, it's all kind of based off of emails and phone calls and referencing, you know, communications like that. But um, and granted, you're reading it from RNBC's perspective, but it, it definitely felt like it was planned out ahead of time. The way everything played out uh, with with Sazerac kind of making their moves on the back end and telling them one thing, but at the end of the day, I don't think that's illegal. Like it didn't. It sounded to me like what they did maybe wasn't best in a partnership relationship, but at the end of the day, they did what was best for Sazerac. It didn't come across as like a, a legal thing that they had breached. More of just like, hey, we wish you wouldn't have done this to us, but now we've got all this inventory. But it just is completely bizarre and crazy to me that it was not a much more formalized process and allowed for Sazerac to basically make RNDC or, or order on behalf of RNDC and pay themselves on behalf of RNDC essentially automatically. Like I can't imagine any other business working like that except for in this crazy three tier model. Yeah, it's true. And, and to also, say to your earlier point, I know I've read in a few articles that they had explicitly said that they did not want any contracts, that anything that was going to be through communication was all basically just done through emails. And I guess it's kind of a, an old school system of just handshakes. And, and that's kind of what they, they wanted it to be. So there was never any formal agreements or contracts that were ever stipulated for something, which you're right, which does sound a little crazy. But knowing what we do on a product and distributor side, we don't have agreements and contracts with a lot of ours as well. That's uh, that's something that's not necessarily, um, I guess you'd say industry standard all the time, but that's because there might be, and that's, and well, by the way, that's because we're small peanuts, but there's probably bigger companies out there that have different things. They've got sales numbers and goals and all this other kind of things that they want to hit that they put inside contracts. So it's kind of a, on an as-is or as-needed basis. Yeah. So when you say like uh, they, who who acted like they didn't want an agree official agreement, Sazerac or RNDC? Sazerac that? did not want an official agreement. Well, sure. I'm and sure. that's over <laughs> their 10 years of doing business together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, I don't know. This is a fascinating one. I, 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 I wish they would like, you know, I think we talked about on this week in bourbon, but how I wish they would do like a C-SPAN or a, you know, where we can watch in on like a trial, which will probably never get to trial, but uh, it's like an OJ trial that I just want to watch more of and see what really unfolds. But I don't know that I'll ever get to that point. I'm really interested to hear Brian and Fred's and Eric's perspective on this because I have thoughts, but they're emotional thoughts and that gets me in trouble. So I'd rather let other people talk. <laughs> Brian, I'm really waiting for you to talk. I just, I just want to yeah, hear I was you say, yeah, I was I waiting for we're, you. We're all just waiting for Brian to jump in. <laughs> no offense, Eric, but uh, yeah. yeah. Now, so one, one of the biggest things that struck me on this when it, when it first came out that Sazerac had sued was everyone was interested in it as far as media was interested in a lawsuit finally, but they weren't not all of them, but most of them weren't saying the magic words of, Hey, this is just one side of the lawsuit. And I kept trying to tell everybody, wait for, wait for RNDC's response here because they get a chance to answer and they're probably going to file their own counterclaim on this. And there hasn't been, there's been some media coverage, but not nearly as much as the huge splash that Sazerac made. So I think that's a lesson, that's maybe neither here nor there, but it's a lesson in, you know, a, a race to the courthouse and being able to control the narrative. And Sazerac always does a fantastic job of controlling the narrative, um, among other things. But um, so so that's one thing. And then the the system, as, as you described it, Kenny, where... Sazerac not only places the order, but they automatically withdraw the money and they ship a bunch of things that maybe RNDC doesn't want or doesn't even know it was getting. It's based on, you know, who knows whose projection. That's just wild to me that, that, they, that two businesses operate like that. Um, but the biggest part that struck me on this is, is RNDC's allegations that implicate three-tier violations and tied house violations. 
And if, if this case goes in that direction, it's bad news for both of them. And I, I really think that they'll have some, they'll, they'll exchange some initial blows here, but this has got to be a case that they try to resolve outside of the public record. They already have a confidentiality order in place, so they're going to, both parties are probably going to try to keep things out of the public record. And I'm hoping the Courier Journal or WDRB or somebody gets in there and fights that because courts are supposed to be open. The only things that you're really supposed to keep out of the public record are things that are truly trade secrets or have some kind of trade secret type value. And there's not going to be a whole lot of that here. It's going to be business deals. And they'll claim that it's that it should be confidential because competitors shouldn't know what kind of deals each of them had. But that's the heart of the case. And the, the public's going to be entitled to know this. And, and I'm like, Blake, I, I want to watch more of this. And I'm going to be monitoring the, the filings from both parties and try to give it to you guys and maybe we'll talk about it at another round table or just periodically update people because I, I think unfortunately because litigation can take so long we'll we'll have long periods of lulls where no one knows what's going on then pretty soon we forget about it and then there's the next case that we're paying attention to and we lose track of this this is an important case to watch because of this, uh, this attack on the three-tier system and allegations of Tide House violations. Can you go into a little bit deeper, like what that means about Tide House violations to maybe somebody like me who doesn't necessarily understand yeah. it all? Well, so, so part, part of the three-tier system that goes back to the post-prohibition compromise on how to handle uh, alcohol sales is that you're as as a producer, you are not supposed to be giving material incentives to the retail level. You're supposed to be totally separate. You can't have you can't have co ownership across tiers, um, and you're not supposed to basically give incentives. And that all goes back to pre prohibition, where bars were. Uh, were tied to a particular brand. And here the allegation is that Sazerac, by having creating all of these positions where they are the marketers, uh, the allegation is that's the distributor's job and that's the retailer's job. That's not the producer's job. And there's there's tall walls between each of those and you can't cross them is, is essentially the allegation. And they and RNDC is saying they weren't letting us do our job, and they were trying to do a job they weren't supposed to do. So how do they? How would you? Because a lot of the the claim is that they're going to launch a campaign to circumvent the three tier distribution system. Like, is there any more information on like what that campaign was or what they planned or tried to do? Now that's that's stuff that hasn't come out yet, but that's the sort of thing that I'll be watching for, and that'll come out in depositions and and documents, and and the way litigation works, we're not going to see all the documents that get provided by either side unless they file them with some sort of motion or some sort of response. So there's a lot that we're just not going to know about this case, and you have to try to connect the dots even when you look at everything that gets filed in the case. So Brian, if I'm if I'm to take a look at some of the stuff that I know has been going on, stuff that I've, I've reported on and my YouTube channel and here, one of the things that's pretty well known in the local market out here is that uh, representatives of not just Sazerac but other other distilleries would tell would tell bars and retailers what they would tell them what they're going to get and dictate to them. It would be like an actual official from the distillery versus a distributor. Could could that be something that would be perceived as against the three tier system? Yeah, I, I think it could definitely be, um, and it just depends on it, it depends on how much they're doing. How, you know, are they really dictating it? Um, are they giving any sort of? I mean, kickbacks is a loaded word, so I, I don't read too much into that. But are they getting kickbacks for product placement or promotions or those sorts of things? And if that's coming from the producer side, 
it's it's a potential problem for them that that ought to be reserved for the for the uh, wholesale and then the retailer level. But I so this is where like I, I see the you know I read the R and D C stuff and you know we're talking about it, but a lot of it I kind of look at it as like you know you all wouldn't be saying any of this if Sazerac didn't pool. It, 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 you wouldn't be saying anything, you know? And so now they're, they're like crying foul in, in, in a lot of ways. And I understand that's how lawsuits go. It, it, it's a back and forth and you realize you're going to give up ground and expose some things. But a, a lot of it to me is, um, I don't know. It, it's bad for, it's bad for both sides, but I don't think RNDC came out looking very good with with what they put out. It's it's I think both of them are going to get mud on them or blood on them or whatever you want to say. And and it's important to note too that Sazerac gets an opportunity to respond to RNDC's allegations and we don't know what those responses are yet. Just just like I was telling everybody, you got to wait for to see what RNDC RNDC says, Sazerac gets the same opportunity. And maybe they'll file a motion to dismiss. They'll at, at the very least file what's called an answer, which answer which responds to each and every point in that really long filing that RNDC made. Now, Kenny, I have all, I've talked to some distributors that have taken on these uh, the the former RNDC spots. Uh, I've talked to several of them, and they're like a lot of them are like beer people. And, you know, the kind of going theory is, is that Sazerac made a move to get in deeper into where the, the wells are. If you go to a lot of bars, you know, the beer world owns the bar, you know, and there's just maybe one or two bourbons. This wouldn't be places that we would normally go. But one of the big theories is, is that they were trying to get into like a deeper, you know, advance in the in the alcohol world beyond spirits and their kind of like quest to take over as they kind of move into a completely different world but these are distributors that are not suited necessarily suited for selling spirits they're beer people so they're all hiring and they're like reaching out to consultants to like try to educate their staffs on what these products are and you're already hearing from people in the market like they're coming in getting pitches, uh, whiskey bars are getting pitches, putting on a tape, putting EH Taylor on the table. Like, Hey, do you know what this is? Like, just imagine walking in, not saying this has happened here or there, but imagine walking into Jack Rose and, uh, saying here's EH Taylor. Do you know what that is? Not saying it happened there, but like it, it's that equivalent. It's like those high level whiskey bars are getting, getting approached as if they don't know the whiskey. So, I mean, I guess that's, that was another question I was going to ask you. If you've been talking to these other distributors, have they just been, I mean, just overloaded with having to bring on all the SKUs and, and having this massive switch, because this is not like bringing on just one company with a few SKUs. I mean, this is bringing on a massive, massive animal that you've got to sit there and, and figure out. I think it's over overwhelming excitement from these other distributors like they they are ecstatic and they are trying to get ahead of the curve they're trying to get their people educated and they just don't necessarily they have relate they have relationships in the market but they may not have the same relationships as as before and you you talk to some of the whiskey bars like uh, talk to a whiskey bar talk to a retailer about how how it's kind of gone because it's been it has been very it's been different. And I think it's been more than anything, it's been awkward because, you know, one rep doesn't know as much as another rep. And, um, you know, usually if you are, if you were ever, if you were an RNDC and you got honored with the Buffalo Trace portfolio, I mean, they, most of those people knew it inside out. Like they were, they had to, you know, do whatever they had to do to sell a particular bottle, but they were usually pretty educated on the products. Blake, I know you wanted to chime in a little bit ago and, and say something. Feel free to unmute yourself. Um, yeah, it was an, an amazing point. Uh, I don't remember what it was right now. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was, uh, what was Brian talking about? Um, 
Oh, the uh, yeah. So they kind of did allude to, um, y- you know, what the what the I guess they would call that the Tide Law issue was. But and it did seem like Sazerac basically told RNDC that, hey, we'll go out and hire our whole our own sales department. And and we had talked about it a little bit um, after that of just basically the Sazerac sales team would go take orders, do everything. And at that point, RNDC is just kind of like a logistics company, which seems kind of how Sazerac was trying to move it. But, you know, that, I think that's the ultimate question is, does that become a tide law question or, or compliance issue? But yeah, I'm sure they have plenty of attorneys, but yeah, I think that was a little bit what's alluded to in the uh, RDC's countersuit was the fact that they did create this whole division or sales team or whatever you want to call it that would act as the RDC rep, RDC reps essentially. I mean, and I guess that's a good question to pose to you all too: is that if they were going to go and they were going to create this this massive sales force that's going to go out there and even to the the point of taking orders. Now they don't necessarily, I mean, if this whole system was there that they could go ahead and actually submit the orders, that's a whole other thing. But I would imagine they go and they take the orders and they submit them to RNDC and then RNDC is still a part of the logistics part of it. Is there something wrong with that? Like, I'm not too sure. Like, I don't see the, like what's wrong with doing something like that because we've been able to experience what it's like as, as somebody that has a bourbon brand we care about our four SKUs. We want that is that is our top focus. That is all we think about day in, day out. Blake, I'm going to use you as an example because you're a retailer. You've got a hundred SKUs or five hundred SKUs or whatever it is, right? So you have to give. You're not even giving a fair share to whatever, right? Most people are like, "Hey, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put a lot of my eggs in the baskets of what I know the top sellers are going to be. If we can grow that, then we grow even more." So you get lost in that that relationship and you get lost in that discussion when you're talking to a wholesaler that has 600 or 6,000 SKUs. And, and so I don't understand why you would, why there's like there, why you couldn't do something like that. So this may be a something, something as simple as hiring a firm versus having them work with a Sazerac.com email. Uh, A long time ago, I think before you all got in the business there, Diageo had a, uh, a group called uh, Masters of Whiskey, and they handled all of uh, Diageo's whiskey portfolio. And they were really, really great educators. And they were actually a part of a uh, a firm. Like they did not belong to Diageo proper. And the Diageo proper people never really went out into the market and did anything. They made decisions behind the office. So it I, I don't know. It may be it may be that simple, and we know there's been um, rapid turnover. You know, for those for those listening or or watching, you know, behind the scenes at Sazrac has been the last six months has been insane. They have lost pretty much twelve people I can think of that moved on for for their own reasons or. We're kind of like, hey, you're going to go away now. But there's just the changeover there is is enormous right now. So I don't know. I don't know. It could it could be could be that simple. I think the problem is, is I think it's okay to have a brand rep go to a store, educate, you know, store owners or bars on the product. I think the problem I think that's being communicated here is what we all thought that was going on was that Sazerac reps were probably going in or allegedly going in and saying, Hey, if you want Pappy or you want Weller or Blanton's or whatever, you need to bring on all our other SKUs here, you know? And I, I think that's where the line got blurry And it was probably going on with R and D C too, but they're probably like telling on them on themselves, but I don't know. Uh, maybe that's where, that's where they, I, I'm just trying to, figure it out. I'm not saying that's happening. I think it's 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 flipped, right? I don't know if there's something that says if you want Pappy Weller Blanton's, you got to take on Wheatley Vodka and Fireball and stuff like that. If it's all within inside the same brand or the same thing, I don't think there's a I don't know what the legality is, but there's got to be something that it says like yes, you buy so much of whatever, that's okay, but you're in that same brand family or the same whatever, the same damn company. I think the problem 
that Sazerac claimed is saying, well, if you want to get Blanton's, well, you've also got to go and get this other vodka made by some Minnesota distillery that we have. Right. And so you do all these package and tie-in deals with your whole entire. You mean R- you mean R and D C was doing that? No. Well, I think that's what Sazerac's original claim was. Yes. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But now I think R and D C is claiming Sazerac was doing that too with their reps. Mm. That I'm not. Entirely it's sure. like they're both telling on each other for the same damn thing. And and that's exactly <laughs> why they got to chill. And, and it's been happening in the game for a long time. But you know the crazy. This is the beautiful irony of all of this a lot of these strict distributor laws and how you can't control pricing with retailers and bars are on the books because of the actual Pappy Van Winkle and the price fixing investigations in the 1940s and 50s. Pappy was so big in uh, making sure that the large distillers like National Seagram's, uh, Brown Foreman and Shinley, couldn't like get in a meeting room together and say, you know what, this independent distiller over here in Stitzaweller is trying to sell their whiskey for five bucks a pint. Let's uh, let's all agree to sell at two fifty, so we undercut him in the market, and you know hurt his stock, so we can go in and bid on on that because that was happening, and all these little distillers were getting bought up during World War II, and Pappy Van Winkle came up and like protected him. I, I bet you. I bet you Pappy actually, if, if he knew how his name and likeness was was used in the sale of uh, of other products, I bet you he'd be rolling in his grave because like that's what kills me about that brand is like no one ever really thinks about like how great Pappy was to, to bourbon. They just think of like the product itself, you know. Yeah, and there's another point that was kind of brought up earlier, and I was just kind of racking my brain thinking about it as well, is this idea that, oh, well, if a Sazerac sales rep goes in there and they give kickbacks or they give whatever, well, they're not allowed to do that. That has to come from the wholesaler or something like that. Was that pretty much what I came to understand? Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Yeah, and there's another point that was kind of brought up earlier, and I was just kind of racking my brain thinking about it as well, is this idea that, oh, well, if a Sazerac sales rep goes in there and they give kickbacks or they give whatever, well, they're not allowed to do that. That has to come from the wholesaler or something like that. Was that pretty much what I came to understand? Yeah. you. I mean, a producer can't go. I mean, kickbacks, again, is loaded word. Um, you know, there's incentives is maybe the better word, but a, a producer can't go in and give incentives to a particular retailer. I mean, there's there's even restrictions on what producers can do on social media uh, for particular retailers. So my question is, is 
can a wholesaler give an incentive to a retailer? Is that legal? I, I no. don't know. It. No? Okay. Is it, yeah, they can give it to, but they, they can give you a distributor, right? No, no, that's what I'm saying. Can a distributor give an incentive to a retailer? You said a wholesaler. Same Give thing. It. Well, oh, I'm no, sorry. Not. not not a producer. Sorry. Yeah. The distributor, can they give an incentive to a store? Um, I, di- I think it depends on how that's coming. To- so we ran into this, but it was more the producer to retailer. Like a, a producer can give, you know, uh, a poster or floor displays, but like we couldn't have somebody pay us to do advertising or whatever it may may be and i'm like 85 to 90 percent sure that includes the wholesaler as well now maybe they could give you some discounts and credits on bulk and that type of thing but i'm i'm pretty sure you can't just say okay distributor to the retailer if you sell x we'll give you y I'm, i'm i'm pretty sure that's that's still off limits it's definitely going to be state by state. Like, um, like when I do my blind bourbon series, you know, now a registered trademark uh, across the country, it, it the some sometimes the 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 bar or the music venue will will reach out to the distributor to get them to pay for something or like the marketing or something, and in some uh, in some markets like Pennsylvania can't do jack shit so it's different everywhere i know this been in the game for a while and i know why every major distillery owns a back bar in las vegas the beverage directors are not putting them there out of the kindness of their heart or because they love those products there is going to be some uh, coin drop somewhere in someone's bank account it's that that it's so uh, vegas is going to be like very different than the rest of the world. By the way, we haven't heard from Eric this entire time. I feel like, you know, unmute yourself, Eric. Come on, get in. You know, I don't know what this whole this whole topic. I'm I'm just kind of like it's a he said she said. So you know, from our my little point of view, it's just what do I know? It, it this whole court case could have a lot of ramifications. I think for drinkers and stores and distributors and producers, but you know, we'll see how much comes out kind of like what Brian was saying. It's what little information we can piece together and what comes of that. If we, if we don't even know the outcome or if it just, everyone gets paid off or, you know, settles and that sort of thing, you know, but if the whole thing was kind of based on these old fashioned handshake deals, you know, should we feel bad for any of these companies that kind of got taken advantage of? Because it seemed like this was bound to happen at some point. It was, it's just, it's crazy that business is being done like that, but I'm sure a lot of businesses being done like this in many different businesses, you know, so maybe this will help change just regarding whiskey and bourbon, that sort of thing. Maybe we'll see less of this because all of a sudden there's depending on how much who who has to pay who and settles and that sort of thing you know maybe some real change will come of this and we'll see less of this yeah that you kind of took a question out of what i was going to think is like what could be the long-term turnout you know of this like what could we see happen i i would love to be able to see that we could see just a little bit of change happening in the three-tier system i know i had mentioned last week on this week in bourbon there's a new website called what was it fermenting change uh, that came out that basically goes and uh, centralizes all of the the points that wholesalers bring up about why we still need the three-tier system. So maybe we can see something that will, hell, take it to the Supreme Court and let's see if it'll change something. Run it, run it across the board, across the states. Hey, let's do it. They get the Jack Daniels case in there. Why not, right? Yeah, that's right. I know Brian's all over that one too. I, I listened to that entire argument this this week. So it's it's fascinating. So maybe that's a future topic. Yeah, I'd say yeah. so. I think this just proves that this old model has can't keep up with modern times, and it hasn't for a long time. And it needs to be, you know, it doesn't need to be abolished. Where I think there's a place for it. It's just like we need to look at it, look at it closely, and how can we make sense of it moving forward and make it a win-win for both parties? Because right now it's kind of this, this, you know, I always say fuckery and shenanigans but that's what it is right now it's this wild west of of things going on so i i know it's as simple as you know saying the three-tier system 
it's three tier systems fault and everything. But I mean, if we had about a dozen states that would get on board and have like a three tier system centric shipping method that checks IDs, everybody would be happy. But you have you you have uh, so much pressure on these these uh, distillers to feel like they have to fight for the last drop of whatever's going on there. Where I think the distributors, the wholesale, I think they're fighting the wrong people. I mean, they to me they should be going to the state of Michigan. They should be going to Texas, and they should be having conversations with these these attorney generals here, saying like, look. You know, we can find a way where your state tax gets paid. It goes through a distributor. You know, there's so many ways that they could improve the three tier system and make it safe for for everybody involved. I mean, right now it, it, it's the because the distillers the distillers are fighting for their piece of pie. They're making they're fighting for their piece of pie at every single turn, whether it's the barrel taxes. Or it's shut, you know, cutting out the middleman. You know, they are aggressive. I mean, you know, you right now you have the largest lobbies, you know, talking about direct to consumer shipping. You know, that's cutting out, that's cutting out retailers and that's cutting out the the wholesalers. But they're the distillers, man, they're being smart about all of this. They're being very smart about this. I just don't, I don't understand like why that's such a big deal. It's like you go make a trinket, you go sew something together. You shouldn't be mandated to say you have to go and sell it to X or Y to be able to get it to the hands of the consumer. Well, like why not, a trinket, why not sell it directly? A, a tr- you can't die by drinking a trinket. You know, there was not a, there was not three tier, three, 13 years of banned trinket making. You know, this is a being being a regulated substance that is every day being told that is worse and worse for us. I mean, it's it's going to be regulated. It's got to have someone in government making sure because, you know, just just the other day we had we had a DUI in my neighborhood, you know, and it was an idiot guy. And then. And somebody served him somewhere. And so people are asking, like, where did this guy get served? And so whether or not it's uh, whoever's pouring it, whoever's making it, um, whoever's drinking it, they're, you're all impacted by what it is. And it is a substance that will intoxicate you. And if you don't you know, know how to drink responsibly... You know, you fuck everything up for all of us. So, all yeah. right, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's such a, it's such a complex animal and beast. Like it's hard to. I mean, you see how, you know, even just like Sazerac with Republic losing them, they've had to lay off tons of workforce, and you know, producers who use RDC thought that. It was going to be beneficial to them that they lost Sazerac because they thought, hey, we'll maybe get more attention. But they had to lay off staff and, you know, that that's jobs lost. And we really don't want that in the industry. And so it's just there's a lot of livelihoods at stake here, too. It's such a, a complex thing. And, you know, it's uh, I, I don't know what the answer is, but there, there's definitely got to be some kind of reform. I, I, I kind of like the idea of distributors being more of that kind of like logistical side of things that way it's like i don't know it you know making less margin then the brands can use that money to have the sales force or go out and do that um you know because right now it's kind of like us producer not just us but producers in general are paying a lot of money to these distributors that isn't necessarily getting utilized properly for the brand each specific brand so it's like I think that might be a good hybrid model where the distributor is like a more of a logistical company in, in, in some sense. And then the brands can, you know, help be the ones out promoting and selling it for, for themselves. So, well, we'll see what happens in the future, but let's go ahead and move on to the next topic before we start running out of time here real quick. And this is looking at kind of the, the influx of what we've seen with counterfeits lately. So last month, Acker Wines, they agreed to pay a maximum fine of $100,000 for selling fraudulent E.H. Taylor four grains 
through their bottle shop. And that was exposed on Inside Edition last year. And when Sazerac commented about Justin's House of Bourbon, they claimed that there was a big Blanton's counterfeit ring happening in the Netherlands. And it feels like Adam Hers is always breaking more news every week of new counterfeits in the black market, with the most recent one being someone from Ohio that was doing label swaps. So, of course, I feel that we are seeing counterfeits on the rise because of the growing sheer number of bourbon drinkers out there. Hell, I think we all see it on our Facebook and Instagram comments of, oh, I've got a bottle on my shelf. It's a twin reach. DM me for shipping details. Like that happens 4,000 times a day. But my question to you all is, is like, when do we think distilleries are going to start stepping up and putting some sort of counterfeit tampering measurements for some of their most desirable bottles? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit overdue at this point. You know, it's it's something that's fairly commonplace in the wine world. Um, and from, from what you can tell, it's it's not like it's some great step. So I'm, I'm pretty shocked it hasn't been done yet in a little more of a, a mass massively uh, embraced thing. But um, what's crazy is you see some of these counterfeits now and it's not just like Pappy and, and some of the big name bottles. I mean, they're counterfeiting just random four roses single barrels because hey if you can refill it for 200 300 bucks and you know it's easy to do why not uh i guess it always comes down to like what responsibility of the uh distillery is it to to keep consumers safe you know while we talked about the three-tier system before this you know the distillery selling to a distributor who's selling to a retailer selling to a customer who then is going out and selling on the secondary in a gray or black market, they're like four steps removed. So are they responsible? I don't know. I think until at least on the whiskey side, it's embraced a little more for secondary and more like investment buying. I don't think we'll see any of the distilleries embrace it. Uh, but, you know, on the wine side and the scotch side, that's been part of the industry for quite some time, whether you people like it or not as consumers. So, um, so that's something that the whole American whiskey producers uh, embrace and get on with. I don't think we'll see anybody jump on to tamper strips or anything like that anytime soon. Frankly, people want to give this industry more credit when it comes to these things. You know, we just revealed on the show that you had two multi-billion dollar companies doing major business on handshake agreements. I mean, for God's sakes, I have I have agreements for just about everything. And and it's like you're telling me we're making, you know, so I, I think that's one of those where they don't think of it as actively as they possibly should. And to be they should have been thinking about this 15 years ago. Pappy Gate happened in 2013. And there's been enormous amount of counterfeit stories since then. You know, everybody wants to blame it on the like, well, who's who's buying it and where's it coming from? And, oh, you should be buying from secondary. But at the end of the day, there is a lot of truth that the 80, 90 percent of the blame should be on the distillers for not making better bottles and making it so easy. Like, they could put out a Facebook post tomorrow that says, this is how you know, and I'm grabbing my wife's, whatever this is here. Uh, she's like, you know, you know, this is how you know. That would be ours. nail polish, has, right? I don't, I don't, this is fruit fetish. Lip oh. gloss. Oh, it's lip Jack gloss. Fed. Okay. Well, it's called fruit fetish. I'm like, whoa, what's going on, baby? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on over here? So it's like, you know, they could say like, this is how you know it's ours. This is what the fakes look like. The fakes don't have this because once you open this, you know, it breaks or whatever. I don't know. I, I'm not an engineer in that world, but or any world, but they could have prevented this a long time ago. But what they're what do they do? They put wax on it. You know, they use very simple bottles or simple stamps or simple foils or labels. You know, come on. Well, I mean, it's a it is a cost saving measure, right? I mean, everything has to go down to that. And I'm I'm probably mostly thinking towards LTOs, but even that showed that that's really not even the case, for, especially with this Ohio label swapper that was buying just Weller foolproof on eBay and then taking those labels and putting on already other sealed bottles and and 
making a, a premium off of it. And dang it, I didn't really think of it as Blake had said earlier that why should this be the distillery's problem? Like they're already selling it through the system that it needs to. And this is a, you know, your mileage may vary, buyer beware at your own risk. You're buying on a secondary black market. So it's kind of, is it, I mean, I don't know. I kind of look at it now. I'm like, okay, maybe it is the, the person who's buying its fault until you get to the point. It's like, you've got, you've got distillers that come out and just throw up auctions for scotch bottles that are 50 years old that sell for $50,000. Those aren't getting opened, but the reason hey, whoa, is- whoa, whoa, whoa. 50 year old scotch is going way more than okay. I'm just I'm just tossing I'm just tossing minimum quarter million. All right. Well, well there is a 51 year old scotch should go for 50, but <laughs> all, right. all right. Well, well I'm sorry. just I'm just saying they're putting temporary or sorry, they're putting counterfeit measures into those because of the nature of what they are. They are collectible, they're going directly to that. I don't think that many people are thinking, oh yeah, we need to go ahead because there's only you know what maybe a handful of those bottles. But they're not going to go ahead and put counterfeit measures across the 58,000 bottles of Weller Foolproof they're going to sell this year. Like that seems a little unreasonable. Well, there's a lot there. This is one of the areas, too, that the NFT technology is apparently like a, uh, a, a powerful tool. And, you know, if you have the if you have the bottle, you have the NFT, you can prove its authenticity. It's what some of some people are doing in the collecting collector world. Uh, there's been talks of chips. There's been talks of, you know, all kinds of stuff. But I just, I don't know. I do think this is more of a a preventable distiller problem than it is on consumers. Um, consumers were always going to be had. Marvin Schenken bought, you know, a ridiculously expensive counterfeit bottle of wine that ended up being in a book called uh, Billionaire's Vinegar. You know, it's it, it happens. It's embarrassing, but it happens. So to say something dumb, why isn't it the distributor's problem? Um, they're the That's ones they dealing, claim, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, let the distributor deal with this and put uh, counterfeit measure, anti-counterfeit measures on it. The stupid three-tier system doesn't let the producer deal with the consumer. I was going to say the distributor wouldn't be able to add anything to the bottle, correct? That, you know, even if they wanted to. Uh, you can in some markets like North Carolina, they have to put a certain tag on it, you know, so that that could they, they can't alter it from like uh, they can't pour it into another container. But there are some provisions out there that require them to do that. There's also North Carolina and I think maybe South Carolina requires them to break the bottles afterward or rip the label off. So that that's another thing that states could do is put that law on the books, but it'd be fought because it's extra work. But you know, to that point, Brian, that's, that's a domestic, you know, that's a very, it's a, that's a domestic strategy. There's, you know, the thing that Sazerac brought up that Kenny mentioned earlier is that there's, there's a lot of stuff coming from the Netherlands and that stuff sneaks into the distributors because you believe it or not, distributors actually will buy from individuals. And in some states, they're allowed to. So if an individual has a couple of cases of Blanton's from the Netherlands, hey, look what I got. You know, it could find itself in the system. It just it happens. And I don't know. I think that a better bottle could prevent it. But, too, I think no matter what you're going to do, somebody's going to find a way to circumvent that and, you know, counterfeit that safe piece, you know, to make it whatever more authentic. I don't know. It's Kenny, should we invest in ours? I don't know. I feel like ours are going to be really valuable one day. Maybe, maybe I I did feel like I made it one time. I was reading through Instagram and somebody said like they loved our sherry finish and they're like, DM me. I got a few balls. I was like, all right, we made it. Somebody's trying to sell some counterfeits of ours. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bad way to put it, but (laughs) that's when you know you made it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I like it. Uh, and then, you know, Brian, you know, you said to put it on the distributor. I think the, the thing that becomes tough with all this is that how many different systems would get put in place of, of how you find anti-counterfeit measurements. And and it's just like, okay, it's like this distributor does this one, this one does this one, this one does this one. And so now you've got a bunch of people to deal with. And, and I doubt there is going to be one uniform way that 
anybody would like the whole industry would get behind because that would kind of defeat the whole purpose of capitalism. But yeah, it was a, it was a, you know, that's why I started by saying this is a dumb thing to say, but (laughs) you know, the three tier system says it's, it's that level that is supposed to have interaction with the retail level. So that's where the problem is. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely hundred percent right. I do think it's going to happen though. I think bourbon companies, they're, they tend to be a little slow to react to things, but once they start getting hit financially with, you know, I think it comes down to trust with the consumer. And if people, normal day people are, you know, lose trust in a, in a, on a bottle or in a company's bottle, if they believe it's real or not, you know, one thing is from a store, from an individual, it's, it's, it's a little different, but if they're buying bottles and let's say, heaven forbid, somebody dies drinking this bottle that who knows what's in it, you know, if that makes the national news that somebody died drinking X, you know, X brand, something's going to push them a little bit. And, you know, until that time, it's going to be slow and it's going to cost extra money. But counterfeiting is rampant in any industry, every industry right now. It's, just, it's, out of, it's really out of control. And it's a little like Fred was saying, it's slower with bourbon. But it's eventually going to catch up to it. And they're going to, you know, like movie ticket, that movie, t- uh, like concert tickets and stuff like that. You know, if Ticketmaster didn't have some way to prevent counterfeits or, or try to prevent counterfeits, you know, they're just going to lose their shorts. And, and, you know, at some point it might catch up the bourbon. They're going to have to act. You know, Eric, you brought up a great point that I actually haven't even thought about. But domestic, we we don't face this. But internationally... There are a lot of people who die from fake alcohol. And, you know, back in the early 1900s, not to say it we're in that time frame, but they used to fake, they used to fake uh, bourbon all the time and with, with sulfuric acid. Now, back then, their stomachs were a little stronger and they could, you know, drink some sulfuric acid. But uh, you would you would go to the store, or you wouldn't be a store per se. But you you would you could actually buy a bottle of blackstrap molasses that had been mixed with sulfuric acid and colored with caramel coloring and labeled bourbon and drink it. You know that that was out there. Horrible headache, by the way. But that's uh, that if that happens with the bourbon label, holy shit, that would be horrible, horrible. Yeah. And you see that in, in Mark Brown's newsletters, probably several times a month that that happens. And a lot of it's in India where it's happening. So and I think it's like, you know, with with bourbon and these big brands, especially the ones that have the bottles that, you know, they're the hard part about it is like everything is planned so far in advance. And it's so hard to like pivot and change to like modern times, like because everything's been bought and planned years ago and so it's it's hard for these companies to switch and pivot but i think they'll 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 probably get on board and and move towards you know more safeguards especially with the rare and limited stuff but i don't know maybe they don't maybe don't give a shit i don't know i mean i would just love to see ebay take some sort of stance into this i mean that's where everything starts coming up and, and really bubbling out is because they can trace everything from ebay sales now Maybe that's a good tool because maybe that's gonna the sales are gonna happen anyway, but they can use that as a, a tracking measure. But I yeah, if people are paying $150 for an empty bottle on eBay, like they have to know that that's what it's going to. They have to know that they are they are contributing to this problem. Maybe they do or don't know that, but I, I wish that somebody at eBay would probably look at this and go, Yeah, we're we're contributing to counterfeit measures. We should probably do something about this. I would think that that would be something valuable to to do. Yeah. How much can Adam catch? I mean, it's, I, I love that, you know, the new stuff that came out in, in Dayton or Cincinnati, wherever it was. I mean, the guy's looking at like little, little marks on labels to match it up. It's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. The screenwriter of American pie, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, Who I can't thought? get it. It's a, it's an amazing Amazing story, actually. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up unless there's any kind of closing thoughts there. All right. Didn't think so. Well, we'll save our our final third topic for the next one, but I'll let the guys here on the bottom row give their little outro. So, Blake, go ahead and go first. Yeah. Always a fun one. Really enjoyed it. Uh, Some more like solemn talk 
topics today. I felt like we had to really dig into our, you know, educational backgrounds to to think about these. But it was a really great show. So thanks for having me, I'm Blake from Sealbox, and looking forward to the next one. For sure, Eric. Yeah, Eric from Breaking Bourbon. Uh, happy to be back again on the show. Um, and in case you didn't know who we were, we uh, we do you know bourbon based reviews, articles, and stuff every day of the week. Um, check us out. And Brian, lead us off here. All right, Brian with Sipping Corn, Bourbon Justice. Find me at both of those on all the socials. This has been a fun one. Uh, can't wait to talk sometime about these squeaky dog toys because that was a, a really fun case to listen to, which maybe just shows how big of a dork I am. But always glad to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. For sure. We'll, we'll definitely talk about squeaky dog toys, or maybe we'll just have you on the, the show at some point just to give a, an overview and the legal ramifications of what this means for freedom of speech. With that, everybody, cheers, and we'll see you next week. 